When I took the job, I basically knew my days of being sort of a darling, prominent Republican that could go run for president. I thought those were kind of over because I decided I'm going to do a job the way the, the founders intended it, which is negotiate, compromise, get stuff done and work with Democrats because that's how government works in any semblance of a divided government. But if we can move our politics to focusing on solving problems and tap into what I hope is an increasing polarization fatigue in America. If Americans are going to say, I am sick of being polarized, I am sick of nothing getting done. And there are political leaders who are actually articulating a more inspiring, inclusive, inspirational solution, then I want to go there. We all agree we want a safety net, a safety net to catch people who slip through the cracks, who help people who cannot help themselves. The ultimate goal of government is not equality of outcomes, but equality of opportunity to help you make the most of your life. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute. Today, I'm speaking with Paul Ryan, Paul served as Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives from October 2015 to January 2019. Today, he is a distinguished visiting fellow in the practice of public policy at the American Enterprise Institute, a professor of the practice at the University of Notre Dame, a partner at Solomir Capital, and vice chairman of Teneo. During his tenure as the 54th Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, he spearheaded efforts to reform the nation's tax code, rebuild America's national defense, combat the opioid epidemic, reform the criminal justice system, and promote economic opportunity. He also served as chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee and chairman of the House Budget Committee. For two decades, he represented Wisconsin's first congressional district, and in 2012, he was selected to serve as Governor Mitt Romney's vice presidential running mate. Paul, welcome to the podcast. I appreciated the opportunity to work with you when I was in DC and now with the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Now let's start in Wisconsin. You're a fifth generation Wisconsinite, born and raised in Janesville. Talk about your upbringing there and how it uh, shaped your interests and values. Well, hey, Hank, first of all, thanks for having me. You know, I'm born and raised in Janesville, Wisconsin. My family were peasant Irish, you know, potato famine Irish. My family went from Ireland to in Wisconsin. Janesville is a town, uh, like a lot of Wisconsin towns, sort of an immigrant cluster town. In Janesville's case, it's a, it's a lot of Irish immigrant families there. The town was about half the size then when I grew up now. It's 60,000 people today. It was about a 30,000 person town growing up. My dad was a small town lawyer. My mom at the time was stay at home. My dad's extended family were all earth movers. They're, they're still there. Ryan Incorporated was founded by my great grandfather in 1881. And my dad and his dad ended up going in a different direction and, and it started a law firm in town. My dad died when I was 16 of a heart attack. He was 55 years old. It was 1986. And his dad died at the age of 57 of a heart attack. And his dad, my great-grandfather, died at 59 of a heart attack. So we have this thing we call the kind of the Ryan family curse, which is our men. We haven't had a, a Ryan live to the age of 60 in three generations. I've got sister and two brothers. My sister and brother have already beaten the curse. My other brother actually is 
not lived to 60 yet, but he's beaten the 55 year old curse of my dad. So, you know, we're kind of health nuts in my family because we know we have this sort of history. You know, I grew up a normal childhood, mowed a lot of lawns, had a lot of odd jobs, a lot of landscaping jobs, a lot of house painting jobs. My first actual, you know, paycheck was McDonald's, you know, minimum wage out in the interstate there, 990. You know, James is a pretty small town, very integrated economically, and it's a big GM town. It was, and it's a huge union town. So I grew up with a lot of union household families. I'd say less than half of my high school fellow graduates went on to college. Most of them went on to like a two-year degree or some kind of a skills job. A lot of my friends went to the plant right from high school because their parents were there. And then I got elected to Congress later on and represented the town. But I grew up in a very blue-collar, small kind of Midwest town, I guess is how I describe it. So you ended up going from there, though, to Capitol Hill as a staffer following your graduation from college. And then you served as a speechwriter to Jack Kemp. Now, what did you learn from those formative years? And how did that lead you to running for Congress yourself? I loved economics. I always did. And I studied economics in school. And my thinking in my life at the time was I was going to go learn a little bit about public finance. I actually first worked for Bob Kasten, a senator from Wisconsin. But he lost his job. He lost his re-election to Russ Feingold. And that puts you out of your job. And therefore, Jack Kemp was starting up a new think tank called Empower America. And he was looking for some young sort of supply side economic policy people. So he and Jack, he and Bob Kasson were close friends and he hired me as his policy analyst. So my thinking at the time was I'll go do this D.C. thing for a few years. Um, public sector economics. I love economics. And then I wanted to go to University of Chicago from your hometown. And I want to study economics to get an advanced degree. And my thinking then was maybe, just maybe, you know, I'll be able to be the chief economist at R.W. Baird in Milwaukee or something like that. That's basically what I was thinking I wanted to do. Or maybe at Goldman in Chicago. You know, I just wanted to go into economics. Private sector was what I thought. And Jack Kemp sort of took me under his wing, became my mentor. And the reason I mentioned my dad earlier is I grew up with mentors, just lots of mentors teaching me things about life, you know, hunting and fishing and business and stuff. Because when you lose your dad, that's the sort of thing that happens to a young guy. You, you cling on to mentors. Jack Kemp, he became my mentor. And he more or less taught me, beyond just being in, interested in economics as a vocation, that I really should get interested in public policy and politics. And so I was pretty young then. And, and was the guy who represented Janesville, Wisconsin in Congress was the first Republican in a long time. Les Aspen had the seat for 22 years. This man, Mark Newman came in the 94 wave, the sort of the Newt Gingrich contract with America wave, barely won by like six tenths of a, of a percent, and then barely got reelected by about another six tenths of a percent. And he was leaving to run for the U.S. Senate against Russ Feingold. And no, nobody thought this was a district Republicans could really do well in. This guy barely won the district. Um, it was a Democrat district by three points. We call it D3. And Jack Kemp said, you should run for office. You know, he just sort of encouraged me to run and to be, he said, if you want to be an entrepreneur in economics, be a political entrepreneur in economics. And so Jack is the one who had this sort of infectious enthusiasm about public policy and making a difference and applying what we called then supply side economics to problems. And I just got really uh, enamored with it. And then I, I was 27 years old. So I figured, what do I have to lose? I went home, went to that Ryan Incorporated family excavating business that my cousins ran, sat myself there and then sort of looked at, you know, how to run a race for Congress. I was pretty young and there were a lot of other people in the race, but it was a Democrat seat. So nobody really thought Republicans had a great chance there. 
And I just basically applied what I had learned from Jack Kemp and others, you know, on, on communicating and on policy to my own situation, ran. And um, I turned 28 during the campaign, but I ended up winning the race by about 15 points. I had a really good win against the Kenosha City Council president, who was the woman who almost beat my predecessor in the prior election. So I didn't know that I was going to win. I was just hoping to get the nomination, let alone win the general election. And I did. And I ended up, you know, doing 20 years in Congress then after that. While you were in Congress, you gained a reputation as someone who really digs deep on policy. That's a quality that I saw firsthand when I led the Treasury Department. You really care about substance and your policy and political views are anchored by facts. So talk about your approach to policymaking and how that evolved. It all started because I was a staffer and I was a think tanker and then a staffer on the Hill. So the whole reason I came into politics in the first place was to do policy. So people come for politics for different reasons. Mine was that. And mine was economic policy in particular, because it's what just I felt like I had a good aptitude for. I enjoyed and I knew it needed a lot of work. It's funny. I remember I was talking to Phil Swagel not too long ago, who was one of your staff guys at, I think, OTA then. And you lent me your Office of Tax Analysis staff because I was the budget committee ranking member, but we were in the minority. So I couldn't get the time of day from the from the Joint Committee on Taxation to help score my tax reform proposals. So you did that for me, which was really helpful, by the way. You, you get these guys over there to help me uh, score my proposals. At the time, then as I am now, I was extremely concerned about our fiscal situation, the trajectory we have, our entitlement programs. And I, had, I was running the Budget Committee for Republicans, which gives you a nice sized staff to do a lot of analysis. It's sort of a mini think tank at your disposal. And I was in the midst of trying to figure out sort of a comprehensive solution to our fiscal problem, which at that time we thought was pretty dire. I just always like solving problems. Basically, I love solving problems, complicated, the more complicated, the more interesting. And, and I love applying, you know, what my knowledge of economics and my love for economics to these problems. I got good advice from Barney Frank, of all people, who told me my first week there, don't be a generalist, be a specialist, find out what you like and are good at and just focus on that and just that. And pretty soon you'll be writing the policy in that area. Don't be mile wide, inch deep. And, you know, Barney Frank and I don't agree on almost anything, but the man was a darn good, effective legislator for what he believed in. And I took his advice to heart. So I said, I'm just going to be just a fiscal guy. I'm going to be a fiscal policy guy. I dabbled in monetary policy, but just a fiscal guy. And I spent all my time on fiscal policy. And I spent all my time with think tankers, CBO, joint tax, treasury people, just trying to understand, you know, how things worked and trying to apply it. And before long, I was basically writing the policy for my party and for the country at, at sometimes when we actually made law in these areas. I focused. I just specialized. Makes a difference if you really dig in and learn. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I had the same experience with Barney Frank when we were on the precipice, you know, the financial crisis. He's a real patriot, and he knew how to legislate and get things done. I don't think we ever would have got the uh, the tarp done if Barney hadn't been there. So, because you dug in and you became an expert, and everyone respected you, you were elected as Speaker of the House of Representatives in October of 2015. Now, that's a big deal. Speaker of the House ranks third in line of presidential succession right after the vice president. So talk a bit about the role and what it entails, the challenges you faced, and your philosophy of leadership. It's funny. I wasn't looking for the job. It kind of came and found me. There are usually two paths in Congress, the, the policy path, like what I did, which was try to be a chairman of a committee and write the policy there. 
or the leadership path where you go up the, the rungs of the, of the ladder for political leadership. And most people who become speaker are people who, who pursue that path. I, that wasn't me. I, I became speaker in a different circumstances than most people. And that sort of affected how my speakership worked to give you a fairly long answer to your question. Sorry about that. And that is the Freedom Caucus sort of launched a coup against John Boehner and he left to spare the drama, the members of the drama. Then the next guy in line, Kevin McCarthy, couldn't get the votes to get the job. And then it sort of came to me as the consensus person. And I had run for vice president with Mitt Romney in 2012. So I had sort of a national exposure and members knew I knew how to handle myself, you know, national media. And I was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee at the time. So I was a policy guy who knew how the place worked. And I was one of the more senior people in Congress at the time. So they basically made me the consensus candidate. And frankly, I didn't really want to do the job, but I knew it needed to be done and no one else had the votes. So I did it. But because I could do it on my terms without having to promise a bunch of things to a bunch of people just to get the job, which is typically what happens, I was able to get it on really good terms. And, and one of which was that we would, we would design, set, and run on an agenda such that if we won an election, we could execute that agenda. So my first term, Obama was president, opposite party. You know, he and I uh, had a good personal relationship, but disagreed on most things. But we had enough of a nice of a professional relationship that we basically decided where we're going to fight each other, where we're going to work together and um, hammer out negotiations on things. When I took the job, I basically knew my days of being sort of a darling, prominent Republican that could go run for president. I thought those were kind of over because I decided I'm going to do a job the way that the founders intended it, which is negotiate, compromise, get stuff done and work with Democrats, because that's how government works in any semblance of a divided government. So I sort of made an inflection point choice then when that job came to me. And it was literally over a weekend. I said, well, I'm not going to run for president then. I, I had a good shot at that because of, you know, I ran with Mitt and I, I had a good national following with the Republicans. I decided if I'm going to do this job as speaker, that's a totally different deal. And I'm going to compromise myself in today's Republican Party because I will go get compromises. I will go negotiate Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell and make government work. So I sort of just got right with that decision and then decided to go do that. And that's where I ended up getting a fair amount of things done with Obama, fighting on things, getting things done. And then what I did that term was make our party produce a lot of policies and bills and proposals that we would then run on in what we call our better way agenda, such that whoever our nominee would be, if we won the White House and kept Congress, we would execute that agenda. And that's exactly what we ended up doing. We didn't think Trump was going to be the nominee. I thought it was probably going to be Jeb Bush or somebody like that, but it ended up becoming Trump. And during the course of the campaign, we got him to agree to support our agenda that we were putting together. Uh, we also got him to do some other things like make sure that with respect to judges, the Federalist Society would produce the list that he would select from, things like that. And he won. I felt the duty and obligation to try and make the thing work for the country's sake and just for the way government's supposed to work. And we actually executed that agenda pretty flawlessly. All but our health care bill got passed. It was a big health care entitlement bill. We lost by a vote. But we passed 1,172 bills that last session I was speaker. And that's almost triple the typical production rate for Congress. Of those 1,172 bills, about 80% of them were bipartisan bills. So it, it sort of surprises people that in this Trump era, with lots of bipartisan victories, uh, those just don't get all the all the noise and all the attention. But we did get a lot done, um, and it's really because we prepared for that session the year before. We we got the legislative literally drafted and scored and ready 
we got everybody to agree to it. So by the time we were in governing mode, we didn't have to go back to the drawing board and start drafting bills from scratch. We had everything ready to go. And I gave Trump a Gantt chart in, in January of uh, 2017 with McConnell's blessing on here's what we were going to do for the next two years. Here's what, where, when, and how, and who does what, when to get this agenda in place. And we basically, I ran Congress on a Gantt chart uh, for two years. And with all the crazy, weird Trump stuff, most of that was just sort of sideshow distractions. We focused on our, on our plan. I focused on running the Gantt chart that I, I designed. I got all the members to buy into. And that's basically how, you know, that was my management philosophy. You try to motivate people through inspiration, participation, get them to participate in designing the plan of governing using our principles applied to the problems, offering solutions, and then map out a, an actual execution strategy to get it in place, and then hold everybody accountable to doing their end of the bargain, keeping their word, fulfilling their duties, delivering on their deadlines. And that's basically, you know, kind of what you do when you're in a position like that. I know that's a long answer, but you're the big, you're the maestro or the traffic cop of Congress if you're speaker. You decide who does what, when, and how you're moving stuff through the system into law. And that's basically what you do. What accomplishment gives you the most satisfaction? Tax reform, for sure. I spent 20 years on that issue. You know that because I worked with you when you were at Treasury there. I had a deep, deep belief that we needed to change the way we tax ourselves from a worldwide system to a territorial system. I wanted to get our system closer toward a consumption-based tax system. And that bill does that. It doesn't go nearly as far as I wanted to, but it went a great distance. And I believed it was going to give us a good foundation for our economy. It was going to prevent inversions and it would give us some um, better wage growth and productivity improvements. And, it, and it's done that. Then there was a whole through slew of other poverty efforts that I cared a lot about personally. Opportunity Zones, the Evidence Act, social impact bonds. Those are things I passed that are part of the poverty agenda I still work on today. And then I was also very worried about our national security. I'd say the rebuilding of our military. It, I really need to give Jim Mattis, Mac Thornberry, and John McCain credit for that. Um, those three gentlemen rewrote a new modernization of our military for the 21st century, typically China. And, and I knew how to create the fiscal space for it budgetary-wise. And so I just sort of leaned in and plowed that field for those guys to, to pass that. We're now a few years into that modernization, and it's, and it's starting to pay, pay off some dividends. I think there's more to do there, but I was very worried about the modernization of our military and its strategy in addition to our tax policy. And so those things, along with the poverty stuff that I really cared about, are the big accomplishments that I draw back on. Looking forward, what's going to be on the desk of the new Republican speaker starting in January? And what advice would you give the speaker? Yeah, he's going to have very divided government, a very, very, very narrow margin. But his number one responsibility in the beginning, in my opinion, is to reinstitutionalize the place. Uh, Congress has been sort of deinstitutionalized. Part of that is the COVID protocols, you know, with all this proxy voting where people don't even go to Congress anymore. They you know, phone their vote in. Part of it is to revivify the committee system. Nancy dramatically consolidated power into the speaker's office away from the committees. So I think the new speaker has to decentralize power of the place, get back to the committees, make the committees do their jobs, be in charge of their jurisdiction. They're the experts in their policy areas. And then hopefully rebuild the budget process, which is utterly broken. The federal budget process just is this so dysfunctional. There's no appropriations process that makes any sense. It's all one massive bill 
We call it an omni. It's literally about four feet thick. And it is ultimately negotiated by four people, the speaker, the minority leader, the Senate minority leader, and the Senate majority leader, who are writing basically deciding spending for the entire federal government for the year, you know, well over a trillion dollars. And the people who are supposed to know something about these programs who spend their careers on the committees overseeing these programs aren't doing that. So I think rebuild the institution by fixing the broken budget process, getting the committees re-empowered, trusting the committees to do their work, holding them to account, and getting legislators busy legislating instead of, you know, playing performance art politics on, on you know, on cable TV and Twitter. And we have a lot of performance art in politics these days, which is one of the reasons we're so polarized. I think if you get members of Congress busy with real responsibility, real policymaking assignments, even if it's to pass something that may not go anywhere in divided government, I think that's a key thing is get the institution working again as a policymaking institution instead of just a bickering and political institution. The way to do that is to decentralize the power from the speaker's office, frankly, into the rest of the members. So I think that's number one. And then he's going to have he's going to have deadline driven things, debt limits, appropriations deadlines, you know, expiring bills. The new speaker, his job is to birth our party from where it is today. Still a bit of a cult of personality around one very flawed person, Donald Trump, to back to a party that is an ideas party, a principled party that offers plenty of leaders capable of leading what are a set of policies and principles and proposals. So the, the new speaker, which will be the head of the Republican Party for the moment, elected wise, He's got to get us from where we are losing elections because we're so Trumpy to winning elections because we are an aspirational, inclusive, idea-based party. And that's to me, is sort of the job of the new speaker. It's a big, big job. And now let's get to your new book, which you edited with Angela Ricciti. It's called American Renewal, A Conservative Plan to Strengthen the Social Contract and Save the Country's Finances. First, what was the motivation behind this book? I worry we're going to have a debt crisis in this country. I worry we're going to lose our reserve currency status. And I worry what that will do to our society, to our social contract, to our social safety net. And I worry that it's a huge test of democracy that we could fail if we don't get ahead of it. And so this is what I spent my adult life on this particular issue, our budget situation. So that was the motivation. I also think from having worked on this for so many years and spending more time with people on the other side of the aisle since I became speaker, which is something you do when you become more in leadership, that I think there's a remarkable consensus to be had in this country on these issues. I don't think it's as polarizing as you would think just turning on your phone and looking at the television and reading newspapers. And what I mean when I say that is from within the 40 large lines of our parties, forget about the, the fringe right and left, you know, forget about, you know, the nationalist populists and forget about the progressives, but just sort of center right and center left, which is where most of Americans are. And there's a lot of data that shows that. I think we agree on a couple of things. Number one, we agree we want to have a social contract in this country. The 20th century debate about the Great Society and the, and the New Deal, we settled on those debates. So we Republicans acknowledge it's good that we have health and retirement security in America for the poor, for the old age, for everybody. That's a good thing. What Democrats have conceded is it's okay if the private sector is involved in this. It's okay that we use you know, private sector delivery systems and innovation and that there are profits made in the private sector that delivers you know, better services at lower prices. 
So if we agree on the mission of these programs, health and retirement security, then let's move on to fixing those programs and making them viable for the 21st century. And then I think the second agreement is we agree we want a safety net. Now, the left and the right will disagree about what the nature of it is. You know, I would say they want more universal basic income, which creates sort of dependence and, and encourages people not to work. But over at AEI, we think work is important. Upper mobility is the core critical component of the American idea. But we all agree we want a safety net, a safety net to catch people who slip through the cracks, who help people who cannot help themselves, and to give people that sort of key boost at the right time to get up and on with their lives. And that the ultimate goal of government is not equality of outcomes, but equality of opportunity to help you make the most of your life. So a vibrant WeWork or the safety net wired that way is something I would argue most Americans agree with that we could have consensus on. And then on the economic side, we need fast economic growth to do this being finance our social programs, finance our social safety net, and to have a society of upper mobility. And so you need people to work. You need labor force participation as best as it can be. That means a welfare system wired toward work. It also means good immigration policies. That's that's not in this book, but that's an issue. But also good economic policies. And I think that's a good tax code that is wired toward making American businesses extremely successful. And we propose a cash flow tax, a 15% um, destination-based cash flow tax with a border adjustable carbon tax on top of that. And what that border adjustable carbon tax gets you is the fiscal space you want to make the rest of the tax code extremely pro-growth so that you have fast wage growth, faster economic growth um, to help tackle these problems. And having a border adjusted carbon tax, I would argue it's much better economic policy than picking winners and losers with credits and subsidies through Washington and will capture China and India's carbon. And being America, instead of going down the Janet Yellen route of trying to get a global min tax that I don't think will work and no one will agree to, America leads the world in saying, we're doing a border adjustable carbon tax on carbon intensity. We're flying it around the world. Everybody should jump on board. And we're going to send price signals to carbon in the smart way so that private sector innovation, private sector technology, all is pointing in the right direction to decarbonize our society in the most economically efficient, upwardly mobile way possible. And so that's what we're proposing, because I think you can get consensus on these issues within the next so number of years. Paul, I agree with you completely on the need for a carbon tax. To help remedy our fiscal situation, we need more revenues. No one likes taxes. But what we should be doing as a nation is putting in place taxes that do as little as possible to impede economic growth, wealth creation. Uh, in income. And a consumption tax is the best way to do that. We're the only nation that doesn't have a national consumption tax, a tax on consumption. It can be put in place so it's not regressive, so that it doesn't hurt lower income Americans, help solve the fiscal problem. And of course, a carbon tax kills two birds with one stone. It mitigates uh, carbon emissions so it's a good tool to use as we're as we're combating climate change, and it will raise a lot of money painlessly, not totally painlessly, but relatively painlessly to uh, help remedy our fiscal situation. This is the great thing about being at a think tank. I'm not a lawmaker now, so I don't have to today propose something that I think I can pass tomorrow. I propose ideas to try and get a debate going that, that maybe the day after tomorrow I have a chance of, of passing. 
our argument here and our tax authors are Kyle Palmeru and Alex Brill, people I've worked with for years. Our argument is if you, the Democrats, want our participation as, as Republicans and conservatives on decarbonizing, here's our price of poker. Here's our Here's our entry fee for getting in this business, making it durable and bipartisan. We want a pro-growth supply side tax code that maximizes economic growth. And in doing so, we can go after carbon. What we don't want to do is have something that big brother, big government, slow economic growth, crony capitalism, which is typically the sort of ideas that I would argue you see from the left on decarbonizing. So if the goal is carbon and not more government control, more picking winners, losers in Washington, but if the goal is carbon and decarbonizing, then we will participate and do it in such a way that we think is best for our economy and gives you the best chance of globalizing the effort. Now, Paul, for many Americans, the dangers of deficits and debt are not top of mind. They're abstract. They're intangible. Can you explain for our listeners in simple terms what a debt crisis would mean for everyday Americans and how it might play out? It means we can't fund the social safety net we now have. It means we'll have to do real-time surgery to cut benefits for people who've already retired and organized their lives around these promises government has made them for things like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. It means the ability to finance your home, your, your school, your education, your business gets extremely expensive. It means we likely lose the dollar as the world's reserve currency, which is an enormous privilege we have um, that we would no longer have, which makes us have to do radical budget surgery to cut spending in real time on the things that people come to count on in their lives. Uh, if we stay ahead of this debt crisis, make these programs solvent, which we have all the proposals that do that. We borrow money to finance the baby boomers, which we know we, we need to, so that they can have their benefits that they count on. But if we can reform these programs for the next generation, my X generation on down, and make these programs solvent and affordable and still deliver on their missions because we learned more in the 21st century and how best to do these things than they were originally designed in the 20th, 20th century, then we can dodge that bullet, maintain the dollars of reserve currency and cash flow our commitments to our fellow countrymen. But if we find that moment, and no one knows when this happens, no one knows. You, you have a better idea than I do, I, you know, just based on who you are. Let's just say it's 10 or 20 years away. It's in our lifetimes. And it's during the middle of the retirement of the people who depend on these things. And it would be catastrophic for our economy. In addition, you'd have a tailspin of the dollar. You'd have an inflation problem as well. Paul, when people ask me when it would come, it's unknowable when it would come. You know, we can't continue to defy economic gravity. The way it will come is we suddenly will have trouble selling our treasuries, right? And the Federal Reserve can't be the only buyer. And so you get it if you get in that negative loop where interest rates keep going up, you're trying to sell more treasuries, you've got inflation, the dollar becomes eroded. Then you have all the problems you talked about. To me, this is a generational issue, generational equity, you know, fairness. You've been a voice crying in the wilderness here. I do believe that mainstream America should be able to come together, but our political system makes this very difficult. I want to talk about solutions because your new book is filled with actionable ideas. So what do you think are the policy reforms that would do the most to help stabilize the national debt? 
I would stay, I would go with the big fish in, in the in the debt problem, which is the healthcare entitlement programs. Uh, those are the, the, the largest unfunded liability. Those are the ones that are bringing us closest to a debt crisis. So we have proposals in every one of these problems. There are fresh proposals on how to fulfill the mission of the programs without going to a debt crisis. The key is going to a premium support system for Medicare. The Medicare Part D program right now is what we call a premium support system. The Federal Employee Health Benefits System is a, a premium support system. You basically have private providers of comprehensive Medicaid Medicare services competing against each other, bidding against each other for the beneficiary's business. And the government, Medicare, subsidizes a portion of that beneficiary's premium based on how wealthy or healthy they are. The sicker get more, the, the, the older get more, the lower income get more the higher income, healthier person gets a less of a subsidy. And that act of choice and competition taken over time, according to the Congressional Budget Office, gets you out of the ditch, meaning helps you avoid a Medicare debt crisis. On Medicaid, states have such unique healthcare markets, you have to give the states more autonomy to customize their Medicaid services in exchange for a predictable growth rate of the program, which taken over time stabilizes your debt. And then Social Security, Andrew Biggs, who's our scholar at AEI, took a look at the best of the other country, other democracies programs, specifically looked at Britain and Australia's program and proposes a variation of that, where you have a minimum benefit in America for the Social Security program where no one would be under poverty in Social Security. By the way, that's not today. There are people who are on nothing but Social Security who, who make less than the poverty level. So we would actually increase the minimum benefit for everybody to be above the poverty line. We means test the program quite a bit for the higher income person. And then we have a component of savings for a person to have their own type lifelong 401k thrift savings plan through their business. Or if they don't get one offered to their job, it'd be a couple of points taken off of their on top of their FICA taxes to go toward their 401k plan. So basically a hybrid of the British Australian version which we think would stabilize the finances of Social Security while also making sure that people actually have retirement savings in old age. Do you know those things right there, the healthcare entitlements and Social Security? That gets you four-fifths of the way there toward dodging a debt crisis. Paul, I hardly agree with you. The way I look at our fiscal situation is this. We're a rich country. There's a lot we can do right now in terms of smart policy to deal with our fiscal situation. But the longer we wait, the more painful the remedy is going to be. So there's a real, real benefit to acting sooner rather than later. What is our responsibility to, to those that the system leaves behind? You know, how well do the current programs work and what needs to be done to make them better? Firstly, I benefited tremendously myself from Social Security when my dad died. Those survivor benefits for myself and my mom were really, really important to us in those days. She ended up going back to college to get a skill so she could have a job. It helped me pay for college in high school in those days. So believe me, I'm a person who can tell you how important these safety nets are. I benefited from them myself. And I think putting all the demagoguery aside, here's the problem. If you do nothing to, to shore up these programs, to reform these programs, then they go bankrupt and everybody loses. So the worst thing to do is nothing. And that will require the painful austerity economics, the root canal budget programming that would have to happen if you do nothing. What we're saying is let's step ahead of this problem. Let's fix these problems at our own terms so that we can maintain the guarantee and the promise of these very important programs. Because just doing nothing within a decade in Social Security, there is an across the board benefit cut. 
on everyone's benefits in real time who are already on the programs. That's what happens. I mean, the Medicare Part A trust fund goes bankrupt within like six years. The Social Security trust fund goes bankrupt in about a decade. So not doing a thing means these programs collapse. And then the people depending on those programs are hurt the most. So stepping ahead of that problem, reforming them and, and rebuilding their finances and making sure that the people who need the programs the most are the ones that are first of all taken care of. And those that can afford a little bit more out of pocket for their own self, for their own benefits, do so is one of the ways in which you can make these programs work better. The last point I'd say is we've learned a lot in the last you know 50 to 100 years on how to run these things. So when Social Security was created in 35 and Medicare in 65, we didn't have the kinds of insurance markets and, and, and saving systems then that we have today. So we know there's so much more we can do to make these programs work better based on what society has learned and done and evolved, that if we can apply those lessons and those technologies and those ideas to these programs today, we can make them work a lot better. So that to me is the, the key practical lesson. And the point I make throughout this book is, I think most of us can agree on this. This isn't ideological stuff. This is just real practical common sense. What we've learned since we started these programs and the way we designed these programs in the 20th century are proving absolutely unsustainable in the 21st century. So let's take some of that 21st century know-how that we now have, apply into these problems and make sure we're going to have another great century where people can actually depend on these benefits, this social contract that Americans have made to each other. And I think we can do that. And like you said earlier, our politics are terrible right now. They're unserious. But there's nothing that makes you think, you know, as a country, than a pending bankruptcy or looming insolvency of these programs or, or our dollar. So I do think the moment's going to come hopefully sooner rather than later, where we just realize as a country, we got to face these problems fast before they, they really blow up in our faces. And I would like to think we can get the politics there. The purpose of this book is to get that conversation going and give a fresh set of ideas and policies that shows you not only is this what we're proposing, not root canal economics or austerity economics, it is good reform policy that makes these programs work better so you can prevent root canal economics, so you can prevent austerity policies from, from having to be put into place. Paul, I'm going to switch gears now and uh, talk about America's you know, economic leadership internationally. What do you think is driving the domestic skepticism of trade and multinational corporations? And what can we do to address these concerns? And more broadly, how do we make sure that our businesses and workers remain competitive with the global economy? Yeah, I do worry about this new onset of protectionism. We have a real struggle between free societies and unfree societies, between democracy and tyranny, between China and America. And that that's that's playing throughout the world to a place where we're sort of deglobalizing. And as we do that, I think we have to be cognizant about how can we make sure our economy still grows, that our people still have opportunities, that our businesses are lean and efficient, competitive during this sort of deglobalizing cycle we're going through. And how do we, how can we make sure that our dollar can stretch farther, that our that our consumers can buy more? And I think to your first point. A lot of people in politics today and recently got really upset with globalization, with the technological transformation, the disruption, and just the flattening of you know, wages in many areas, and the churn and the change that happened with globalization. I come from this part of the country 
disaffected people who lost their livelihoods or don't see the careers in front of them that they say their parents had. And that's that's a different economic landscape. And they're really concerned and confused about it. Where they fit in this and how do they have, you know, good material upper mobility in this globalized world we live in, which because of lots of things, globalization is part of it. How do we have a new policy that makes sure that we don't repeat those mistakes, that we can still progress in society, increase our economy, increase our wages, increase our take home pay, increase our living standards while still keeping American businesses lean and efficient and competitive and just adding the global growth. And I think the populism that we have, both on the left and the right, has tapped into this dissatisfaction that, that, that has brought us to where we are. Well said. And that brings us to the next question, which is, we're not going to be able to generate those policies and the national trust, the public trust, unless we have a political system that works. And there seems to be hopeless political polarization in Washington. And earlier you said, you know, most Americans are in the middle, right? Left center, right center, not in the fringes. But we have a political system, a primary system, which makes it very hard for those in the center to get elected in, in many instances. How do we get out of this mess so that Washington, D.C. can update our policies to deal with the challenges we're facing at home or abroad? Yeah, that's what's so frustrating about all this, Hank, is I think all of these problems we have are totally solvable problems. The problem, that's what the whole point of this book is. We can solve these fiscal problems, these economic problems. I think we can solve these, these employment problems, these, these wage growth problems, standard of living problems. I think we can solve these problems. We don't have serious politics that are capable of doing that, though. That's the challenge. So my hope is that instead of... Um, populist politics that are sort of irresponsible populism. Populism not tethered to principles and ideas, but tethered to things like identity politics and just rage and outrage. Those kinds of populist politics will continue to produce nothing, meaning no solutions, just angst and anger. But if we can move our politics to focusing on solving problems and tap into what I hope is an increasing polarization fatigue in America, if Americans are going to say, I am sick of being polarized, I am sick of nothing getting done. And there are political leaders who are actually articulating a more inspiring, inclusive, inspirational solution. And they're a person that's a proven problem solver that will help me solve my problems. Then I want to go there. And it's sort of like Reagan after Carter. And I'm not trying to say Republican versus Democrat, even though I'm obviously a Republican. And I want a Reagan 2.0 who's going to say America has, has great days ahead of it if we just tackle these problems. Here's my solutions. Here's the principles that built our country that I'm going to apply to today's problems. And we're going to get through this. And some real problem solvers that go and focus on getting stuff done and not owning the liberals or owning you know, another person, meaning politically speaking. I think that kind of aspirational, inspirational Reagan 2.0 kind of politics, people are going to be hungry for it in the not too distant future. So I think this populist moment we're in, which is probably a six to eight year moment, is probably on, the, on its backside. That's a really a positive note to end this discussion about policy on. And I would like to conclude this with two more general questions. First, you and I both share a love for outdoors and spending time in wild, beautiful places. Uh, I love to fish. You like to hunt and fish. Has this always been an important part of your life? And 
what else do you do to relax and unwind in your free time? Well, I um I retired in 2019 to be more involved in my kids' lives. They are now 18, 19, and 20 years old. So most of what I do is revolves around their lives. And it's two in college, one in high school, and just all of that that involved in that. Outdoors is my thing. I hunt, fish, ski, mountain climb, hike every way and any excuse I can. That's what I enjoy doing. And I almost always do that with my family. So most of our time is spent doing those sorts of things. Just getting our family outside, outdoors, doing fun things together. I tell you, it's a great way to spend time with the family. Now, I want to close with advice to our young listeners. What advice do you give students who are navigating their lives and careers in today's rapidly changing world? Be careful about falling into the trap of identity politics and getting sucked into a tribe or a group where all you do is listen to people who only agree with you, where all you do is subscribe to you know, a website that algorithmically feeds you your biases. Get out of the cognitive dissonance, think and learn for yourself, but also spend time with people who do not look or think like you. You have two ears and one mouth, use it in that proportion and work really hard at doing your part to try and depolarize society and look for common humanity, look for common goals, common creeds, common aspirations. There always are those and focus on those things and build good relationships. And it'll make you just a better, happier person. And it'll also help you get things done, won't it? Exactly. It's how you get stuff done. Paul, thank you. This has been terrific. Keep up your advocacy for fiscal reform because you're fighting a battle for our children and grandchildren. And thank you. My pleasure, Hank. Good to be with you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.